0: Well, it's my, uh, my pleasure to be continuing our series here this morning uh, from the book of Titus. I hope you've been enjoying Titus. Uh, it's a very practical book in many ways. And uh, because it's small, you get through it and get out the other side and think, hey, we, we've completed something there. So hopefully you've been, you've been enjoying the journey. Uh, I'm going to pray for us uh, that we'd be able to listen well and be challenged to be living good lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this word that's been uh, preserved for us. Uh, Thanks that Paul wrote it to Titus and that your church treasured it, Father, such that we can be reading it here today, uh, 2,000 years later. Uh, Father, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to have open hearts and ears and would you energise us, Father, to be living in ways that are pleasing to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, well I was thinking uh, a little bit uh, today about... uh, well, last night, actually, uh, about how to, uh, how to get into this, this, uh, this sermon that we're doing today. And I thought I might start with Australia, things that we know. It looks very ocker, doesn't it? I, I don't know quite where that's from. Anyone got an era kind of in mind? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a drawing style that we don't see anymore, isn't it? With those kind of little, um, well, large emus in the middle of Northern Territory and all those sorts of things. So very Australian, Australiana in some level. And uh, what I want to think for a second is uh, to take the temperature of Australia, uh, not almost 100 degrees, but it was a nice little image, uh, to, take, to take the temperature of Australia, and just think for a second, what's the world that we're swimming in like? If we had to diagnose our world at the moment, in particular our little corner of the world, Australia, what's it like at the moment, and what would God's Word say to us? I think we're going to see today that what God's Word says to us is something quite at odds with the way our culture is going. So I just want to take a little temperature, a little dip in the water and say, what's our, what's our Australia like at the moment? So let's, um, let's ask some questions. Uh, if we were to ask Australians, how are you doing? What, what's the answer to that? Hey, how are you doing? You, you know the answer and some of you are calling it out. How are you? Yeah, yeah, okay, not bad, fine. I, I think fine, thanks or not bad. I'm good. We're really happy to say, on the basis, if we were to say, how are you going? I'm fine. I'm fine. And I think when Australians say, I'm fine, um, they can be in hospital, um, they can have broken bones, they can be on fire, lying in the gutter. If someone says, how are you doing? We would say, fine, thanks. No need to disturb anyone, (laughs) whereas you are. It's just our default answer. The really interesting thing is, I think as well as just being the words that come out of our mouth. I mean, I know when I'm sick, if someone says, how are you? I'll say, I'm fine, thanks, before I've actually processed, are you asking how I am. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm unwell, thank you. Uh, I actually think it gets beyond just the words that come out of our mouths and it actually reflects how we feel in our hearts. What I mean by that is, how are we doing generally? Uh, We're good. I'm sure everything is basically right in the world. God must think happily of me. We're fine, things, So it actually goes beyond the surface, and I think, think it reflects where we think we're up to. Uh, if we were to say, what's our big story? Now, we could have a really big debate about this, and we could go back to high school and learn all these things again, but, but I'll say generally what I think our big story is. Our big story as Australians um, is that uh, the history of our white civilization of this continent starts with us saying, at some level, we're proud to say we're what? convicts, we're convicts, right? Uh, and in fact, it's become a mark of honour to say, "I, oh, I can trace my way all the way back to a convict family. We're a strange lot, that's all I can say. My relatives were incarcerated for doing the wrong thing and shipped to the other end of the world. Pretty proud of that, actually. Anyway, be that as it may, I think that's a key part of our white heritage in Australia. We're convicts, and because we're convicts, our, our respect for authority is high or low pretty low. Uh, in fact, it's kind of in our DNA that we don't like authority because we kind of tie back to this kind of convict thing, I think. The other part of our big story, and I'm sure you'd be able to tell me if we thought about it, but I'll put it up there anyway, is what? What's this? Can you do better than that? What's, what's this a picture of? Gallipoli, yeah? And more particularly, if we, if we were to give it a little title that would capture the thing that it is in the Australian conscience, it's ANZAC, isn't it? you want to know who we are we're convicts and we're anzacs and the idea of being anzacs is we'll do anything for our mates we're basically good we'll give it a shot and the thing we celebrate is a wonderful defeat in battle that's so australian isn't it i actually think it's quintessentially australian what we love what we celebrate what we lift up is yeah this is the day our nation was born in mighty failure on the battlefield very odd anyway that's i think that's part of our big story uh, what are we doing with our lives as Australians? Uh, I think fundamentally, and this is I think an, our obsession as a nation, is we're building our castle and paying it off. Now you can disagree with this. I'm really happy to have debates, and you to say actually I see far more productive things happening in the Australian landscape. But if you if you think about how much language goes to real estate and housing prices, and I just think it's extraordinary we have an unbelievable obsession with our castle. Our home is our castle. What are we doing? We're building homes and we're paying them off. And when we're not paying them off, we're complaining about how much they cost and we're looking at another one or upgrading the one that we have or wondering about why those houses are going and what the interest rates are. It's extraordinary. A national obsession with our little castle. What are we devoted to? Well, I I thought I'd go right to the medicine cabinet and... uh, See what was in there, uh, you know. If there's lots of Panadol, it's because you get headaches. If there's lots of cold and flu, it's because you've got colds and colds and flu. Here's the national medicine. You ready? Master Chef, the Block, Better Homes and Gardens, and I've got spelling bee up there. What 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 are we devoted to? We are devoted to cooking, renovating, gardening, and educating. Now, now I should put sport up there as well, which is our national religion kind of on the side. I should put that up there. But it's extraordinary. We have to get our fix, don't we? On food. And how much a patio would cost to put on the back. And what to, you know, I don't know, plant in this season. I don't know anything about planting. I'm, I'm a failure in this regard. And uh, spe- I, I just put the spelling bee up there. Um, it's really interesting. That's a show coming on Channel 10. Uh, about spelling for kids. Now, the only reason I reckon that's got any traction, apart from the fact that we can feel good that we might be able to spell a word that a seven-year-old can, I actually think it's because it taps into our natural obsession, which is lifting our kids as high up as we can make them by pouring ourselves into their education. I think in many ways our kids are our idols. And so I think what are we devoted to? These are the things that we're devoted to. And the, and the perfect example of that was the final of MasterChef. I don't know, anyone watch it? Maybe you didn't. The last thing to, to, to win was a five-hour dessert. It took five hours to make the dessert, right? And I just think if there's anything that diagnoses our obsession taken to the obsessive end, it's spending five hours so someone can eat a dessert. Please laugh, it should be hilarious, but I think it's dire, Incidentally, that's not God's account of what's best for us. That is not God's account of what is best for us as Australians. It isn't. And we're going to have a look here in the Word today and find out what his tips are. What we're going to see is that wrong belief leads to wrong action. If you have the story wrong, if you have the things you value wrong, they will lead to a life lived the wrong way, wrong action. And what we want to see today, that the theme that's been stitched into the book of Titus is that right belief leads to right action. So it's not a matter of, I don't need any theology, I just need to live a good life. I want to tell you, you can only live a good life when you've got your theology sorted out. But theology sorted out is not an end in itself, it must naturally live itself out in a good life. And if we start with the wrong story, we're going to be messed up. Let's have a look at the Bible. God says we aren't doing well. We are not doing well. Have a look with me. Open the Bible. You should be with me on page 1201, or was it 1817 in the large print Bibles? Uh, In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, it says here, this is God's verdict. You ready for this? It's not not especially complimentary. At one time, we two were foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Wow. How are we doing, Australia? Well, God's verdict is, before we found new life in Jesus, that we were his enemies, that we lived in disobedience and malice and envy, that we were slaves to our passions and desires. Now, guys, that is not a complimentary picture. It is not a complimentary picture. But we need to face up for the fact that our God, who incidentally, news break, isn't us. His standard on us is actually that we're falling short. That before we meet Jesus, Australia out there, and each one of us before we met him, we're actually living at odds with God's good plan. Second, we see that God says is actually a better story. So we have a national story God actually says, I can take your national story and give you a far better story, an overarching story to make sense of your life. Have a look with me. Let's let's dive in here. This is the really good stuff, you know. Uh, So we're in Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 to 7. So so we were living as his enemies, right? But... stop and let you listen. That, that isn't the whole story, right? There's a second part. And, and I think if you're sitting here and you go, who wants to hear the bad news about Australia? Who wants to hear that God's a grumpy, bad head, you know? No one wants to hear that God's just angry and upset. Surely we're just playing into the, all the stereotypes of what the world would think about us as church, you know? Boo, hiss. No fun in this place. Have a listen to what he says. God diagnoses that we're not living right. And then he says, but have a look with me at verse four. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he what? Verse five. Call it out. He saved us. Why did he save us? Because we were so excellent because we're doing such a good job of looking after our lawn and paying off our mortgage. Is that why he saved us? It says here, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Isn't that awesome? I know you don't need to call out, and you're secretly inside, jumping up and down, aren't you, and just going, oh, it's extraordinary. The kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us when we were unworthy, when we were his enemies he saved us. How brilliant. Yep. <laughs> Gee, I love you guys. And, and honestly, we don't, need to, we don't need to have un-Australian shows of emotion, okay? So I get that. But, but do you know what? Somewhere inside you, This has to stir you. And if it doesn't stir you, I want to say to you, have you heard it? And do you know you've been set free? That you can find forgiveness, that you can meet grace and a fresh start in the name of Jesus. Something that is truly new life might come to you. And if it has, do you want to praise God for it? Yes. Be refreshed in the beauty of the good news. There is a better story than convicts and Anzacs for you and for me. There is redemption from the living God. I, I mean, I, I tossed this up and I, I was going to read a, um, a testimony from someone who's, um, who's been saved. Uh, and I won't do that today. Uh, I want you to think, if I was to ask you now, could I have you come up the front personally? I asked you to come up the front and and I picked up the microphone here and I said, hey, the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, tell me your story. Have you got a before that's now been transformed by the living God? Are you able to tell me? Now, some of you will be able to say, wonderfully, because of God's great grace, do you know what? I can't remember a day when I didn't know Jesus. Some of you like that? And you're thinking to yourself, oh gracious, I don't have an awesome story like that. I wasn't a drug dealer on the streets of New York and uh, somebody came and said... You don't have that story. But what you do have is you have an account of the fact that God has been changing your passions and desires, that you are not the person you used to be. Yes? And that's his work in you and it's a beautiful testimony to the fact that we are being made new here. And it's God's work in us. Have a look with me at what what this actually looks like. Uh, I think this is extraordinary. Have a look with me at who saves us in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, God, our Saviour. So God the Father here is called our Saviour. That's pretty unusual. You don't normally see him called our Saviour, right? Who's normally called our Saviour? Nice. Can you see here? God the Father is called our Saviour here. That's pretty cool. Have a look. Uh, God the Father, uh, but when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his word. He saved us through, what does it say there? The washing of and rebirth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Who's helping in this salvation? Who's renewing us on the inside? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. Have a look. The Holy Spirit, though, whom he poured out, verse 6, on us generously, generously, sorry, generously. Not just one little drop. Oh, look, there's enough Holy Spirit for you. No, no, no. Poured out his Holy Spirit on us, lavished it on us, so that we might know him personally. How did he pour out his Holy Spirit? Generously through who? Jesus Christ, who is here called what? Our Saviour. Okay, just just, just listen up for a second. Here's something cool. God the Father is called our Saviour. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is called here our Saviour. The one who we're saved through is the Holy Spirit. Now, when someone says to you, the Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible... I want you to see here how beautifully connected the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is in saving us. Can you see that? Can you do without one of them and be saved? No, you can't. Salvation is the work of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. How beautiful. That's my God. So when someone says, I believe in God, I go, that's great. When I say God, I mean Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Is that who you mean? Because we're not all talking about God when we say say those three letters, G-O-D. We are talking about the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the beauty of that is that's how he's able to save us completely. How good's that? More than that, because he has saved us, he has put something in our hearts. Have a look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, that is, put in right standing before God by his free gift, We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You and I, this is our big story. The timeline we have isn't when my kids graduate high school, when my mortgage is finally paid off, when my credit card debt from my overseas holiday is finally paid off. That isn't the horizon that we're living to. We are living to a horizon that has the hope of eternal life. It's beyond now. That's what our story is about. God says there are even better things for us to do. Please pay off your house. Please love your family. Please educate your kids. Please do those things. But there's something even better for us to do. Have a look with me at uh, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. What he just said. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress these things so that, there's a purpose, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Can you see that? There's a purpose. It's not just that you'll live with a big story, but your right belief will now cause right action. I'm stressing these things to you so you get this story, so you live in light of it, and you live in right action. So what's profitable? Did you see that there? Um, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So what on earth is profitable? Well, let's think of uh, the, the, uh, the work world for a little while. Uh, in the work world, to be profitable means to make a profit. Okay, very good. And you make a profit when what happens? Sorry? Sorry? You get rich, very good, absolutely. When, when your income exceeds your expenses, you start making a profit. Okay, that's all very good, okay? So if you're a business, your job is to make a profit. I don't know if you guys have heard of a thing called the triple bottom line. Has anyone heard of that? Well, that's exciting, fantastic. So most companies used to work on the fact that they make a profit. How do we know if we're a successful company? We make a profit. There's a thing called the triple bottom line, and what it says is we're not just looking at the bottom line in the accounts sheet. What we're doing is we're actually looking at how we're doing with our people, our people. So if we're not looking after our people, I don't know if you've heard companies say um, our greatest resource is our people, right? It was probably our capital and our bank loan, but, but they say it's our people. And so what that means, if we're looking at our triple bottom line, not only do we want to make a profit, we actually want to make sure we're caring for our people. That's starting to sound pretty good, isn't it? But that's only two things. What's the third part of the triple bottom line? Companies that are really working on this triple bottom line look at a third thing, which is the planet. How is our organisation impacting the environment around us? And can we truly say, as an organisation, that we've done well if we get stacks of cash but trash the planet? and don't look after our people? And the answer here is no. And so they've started talking about this idea of a triple bottom line. And and what that means is they're going for this unique overlap of things where we're looking after our people, where we're making stacks of cash and we're not trashing the joint. That sounds pretty good. And in the company's world, that's real profitability. Okay, great. Now you've all learned something, that's fantastic. What's it got to do with the Bible? Uh, that word profitable in, the, in verse 8 here also turns up in one of Paul's letters to Timothy. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter, eight, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Physical training is of some value, of some profit. But godliness has profit, has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. See, I love getting fit. But if I'm fit and out of relationship with Jesus and I die, guess what? It counted to naught. Godliness, on the other hand, has profit for the present life and for the future. All right, let's think those things together. People and planet, I want to say, are this present life. So so Paul says there's two ways to judge profitability, have value for the present life and the life to come. So if we were to think about people and planet, they're, they're, they're firmly in the present life. What about... The age to come. Well, you remember God gave us that new horizon when he put that hope in our hearts. Now we're able to think of the life to come. You with me? Okay, let's put that together. I want to ask us, does our idea of what is good have a dual horizon? Do we have a double bottom line for a profitable life of doing good? The double bottom line is, does it have impact for this present age? and does it have impact for the age to come i've done that in the wrong way age to come present age okay very good so so when you're working out is what i'm doing doing good i want you to think about it in terms of those two things is it doing good in this present age does it have any impact here but more than that does it echo into eternity as well are you with me okay so our sweet spot then becomes an overlap of this present age and the age to come. If we're investing, if we're doing good in that little spot, that's profitable. That's a truly profitable life. And our profitable life makes sense in light of our big story. That God doesn't think that the world is doing okay now. That we were previously slaves and that we were saved by Jesus. If you take that and feed it into that, you'll find yourself right at the heart of what it means to live a profitable life. This is true profitability. So how might that work out in practice? Well, it's interesting. He actually goes straight to practical application in the passage that we're reading here. And you might have thought, it's a shame that this other stuff gets in the way of this brilliant passage, but let's have a look at it, and I think it makes sense. Um, I don't know if you've walked past a bad busker recently, It's funny we don't get many buskers out here, do we? Anyway, I, I used to uh, go to uh, uni via the um, by, by Central Station, and you know you walk along and you can hear somebody warbling from you know a hundred meters away, and you're like, oh, I'm going to just turn my head away as I walk past. That idea of ignoring actually is what uh, is uh, is mentioned here. Have a look with me um, at Titus three nine to eleven. So he's been told to do things that are excellent. In verse nine, it says but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. In essence, Paul is saying to to Titus here, mate, if you've got people who persist in just rabbiting on about all the stuff that's on the periphery, he said, warn them once to stop it. If they keep teaching things that are right out there that are not helpful, hence he says, ignore them. Will we shun the persistent, divisive person? And what that means in essence is, we'd go and talk to them, we'd say, hey look, you're banging on about something that doesn't really matter. Can you please stop? They don't listen, they keep going. You're banging on about something that's completely unhelpful It's not at the heart of the good news about Jesus. Stop doing it. They ignore us. Then what I'd ask us to do as a congregation, if they persist in that, is to quietly and appropriately ignore them so that the teaching might not catch hold and corrupt all of us and that they might realise, you know what, the fellowship I enjoy is so much better than my silly argument. I want to come back and join everyone again. So, Part of living a good life is to recognize those who are being unprofitable and to shun them if they're persistently unrepentant. Can you see that's not just, oh, we don't like you. Everyone's going to turn their back on you. Not that. Okay. Uh, then he says something really cool. I love this, ladies. Aren't they beautiful? Uh, farewelling. Uh, have a look with me at Titus 3, 12 to 13. On the other hand, not divisive people, but people who are preaching the good news about Jesus, those people, when they, when they come to you, he says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they have everything they need. You will do well, church, if you'll equip messengers of new life. So Paul's going to send some guys to come in and help the church. As they help the church, send them on their way well, love them, support them, and send them on their way well. If you're living a profitable life, you'll shun the persistent, divisive one, and you'll love and support the one who's trying to help us grow in that. You see how that works? Nice. Send them on their way well, he says. Lastly, God says there's a better devotion than five hours on dessert. There's something better to pour our lives into. Incidentally, if you're a brilliant pastry chef, can I chat with you? Um, I, I, it's not that you can't make beautiful food, okay? But I want to know what you're doing while you're making beautiful food. And if your glory is wrapped up in the blown sugar ball that you create at the end or whatever it is, if that's what you're bound up in, guess what? your life isn't being profitable. If you live next to other crazy devoted food people and tell them good news about Jesus and love them, guess what? Profitable life. God says there's a better devotion than a five-hour dessert. Have a look with me at verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. That's what we're to be about, living productive lives. Remember in, uh, in uh, Crete, there are people who were famous all over the world for being lazy, liars, and gluttons. Imagine Paul saying to Titus, guys, church, okay, here's what you've got to do. You need to live productive lives. They're like, we're genetically opposed to that. We actually have a national characteristic that you're crashing into if you ask us to do that. All I want to say to you is, if we're going to live at odds with Australia, we'd better have a good reason for doing it, hey? And I think the good reason is a bigger story and a better story and a better hope. Uh, And that's great. And then Sunday finishes and you go home, don't you? And then Monday starts and Monday might look like this for you, yeah? Or Monday might look like this. Oh, that's Tuesday here, I think. Um, Or like this. Maybe that's this afternoon's activity for you. Or, Or maybe it looks like this. And you think, wow, I heard a really inspiring message about living a good life today, and now I've just got to do all the sucky things in my world that are just part of it. And I want to suggest to you today that these are not terrible things that are wasted. And that actually, if we take that big story in we can actually see that the mundane and the ordinary of our life can be redeemed for God, that we can be living good lives for God in the midst of the everyday things that we do. Have a look at what he tells him in verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Don't speed, even if you could. Be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. We can start doing that, hey? And we can start living those characteristics of the good life right where we are, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our cars on the way there. We can actually be living a good life because right belief will lead to right action wherever we are. Not just those extraordinary moments where the theme music's playing and you're thinking, wow, I'm doing what my life is all about, but in the everyday, the mundane, to let this big story lead us to right action. So what are we seeing? I want to encourage you today, guys, that good things, a profitable life is to be found right here. Let this story of God's salvation inform the fact that you are living for this present age and the age to come. Feed that story that maybe everyone in the world around me is not saved. Maybe they're not okay. Maybe they need to be told the message of new life. Maybe I can help them by loving and caring for them in considerate and gracious and obedient and compassionate ways. And so I want to say to you guys, this plan that we have, when we talk about giving the message of new life and living new life for Jesus, it's at the heart of what God believes a passionate life, a profitable life is all about. And I'm going to pray for us today that we would let right belief shape right action As a church here, we give and live the message of new life in Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, would you help us to see the world around us, particularly Australia, afresh? Father, would you help us to hear your verdict? Father, would you help us to see in ourselves where we're captured by our culture? Heavenly Father, remind us afresh of the great story that we're a part of. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us through your Son, by your Holy Spirit, that you've washed us and renewed us and called us to live good and profitable lives. And we ask you to help to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.